This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I know I say this all the time, I have an extra special guest, but man, I have an extra special guest. Professor Robert Cialdini, author of Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, is back. Professor Cialdini's books have sold more than 7 million copies. Influence is on a ton of people's top book list, including none other than Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway. I wish we had another three hours. I had so many questions. I was taking notes furiously. You can hear me writing and typing in the background. We, I wanted to circle back to so many things he brought up. There's so much to talk about. Really, it needs about eight hours. We, we were lucky we had him for uh, well over an hour talking about, you know, most people, when they expand a successful book, they, they do a light touch-up. This new book, it's double the size of the original. It absolutely is practically a brand new book. Look for the blue and gold cover if you want to make sure you're getting the 2021 edition. I found the conversation to be nothing short of, of fascinating and spectacular. And I think you will also, uh, you will hear my thought process of, do I just stay with this topic? Do I get to the next question? Let me circle back. And of course, you run out of time. There's, there's, I, I literally had 40 more questions to ask him, plus all of my notes. And, and unfortunately, you know, these podcasts aren't nine hours long. But you will find this to be absolutely fascinating. He is an intriguing person and just so knowledgeable about why people do what they do and how we influence each other, including some of the ethical considerations of that. Let me stop babbling with no further ado, my conversation with Professor Robert Cialdini, author of Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Dr. Robert Cialdini. He is the Regents Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Marketing at Arizona State University. He is the author of books that have sold more than 7 million copies, including Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, and Persuasion, A Revolutionary Way to Influence and Persuade. His new and expanded version of Influence is just out. Robert Cialdini, welcome back to Masters in Business. Thank you, Barry. Good to be with you again. Same. I've been looking forward to this for a while. And, and I have to start with, you know, my, my 1980-something version of Influence is this skinny little dog-eared paperback. The new book is, I don't know, it's probably double in size. It's bigger, it's, it's expanded, it's more in-depth. How much of this book is is new and different compared to either the original or, or any of the prior revisions? We added 220 new pages. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, so it's almost like uh, a new book. It's, we didn't just append 220 pages. We uh, integrated the new material into the existing material because uh, the existing material still uh, fortunately stands, and we wanted to uh, emphasize new directions, new uh, information, new examples, and specifically new ways to harness those principles. One of the things we got as feedback on previous editions is, you know, uh, Professor Cialdini, we, we, we understand those principles of influence. We, we see their utility in business. But can you give us the exact words that we can use to ignite them, to uh, activate them in a particular situation? So there's a lot more of uh, specific things to say, specific scripts to use, specific sequences of uh, information to provide that allow you to uh, uh, to be the benefit of those powerful sources of change. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. I have to go back to the original book and ask you a question that, you know, just grabbed me when I first read this. And in, in the beginning of your research for Influence, 
which really dates back to you as a grad student, you spent a few years working undercover at places like used car dealerships or telemarketing firms. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of Influence. You know, I started working as a academic research psychologist, social psychologist, studying my passion, which is persuasion and social influence, in a laboratory, using college students as my subjects for the most part, and learning some important things, I think, by being able to structure an environment in which we were able to test exactly the um, question that we were interested in, um, in a rigorous way. But I quickly began to see that I was limiting myself in recognizing how we could generalize the results that we got from college students in a laboratory to the influence wars that are being fought all around us every day in which people are trying to move us in a particular direction and we're trying to move others in a particular direction. What's the evidence of what works in naturally occurring interactions between people that cause one person to say yes to another. And it seemed to me that there were professions whose business it is to get others to say yes to them. Right? They must know what works, otherwise they would go out of business. So I began to take training undercover in as many of the influence professions as I could get access to by uh, signing up to be a a, a trainee. So I would learn what they had learned that got people to say yes in a variety of these uh, professions. So I learned how to sell automobiles from a lot. I learned how to sell insurance from a desk. I learned how to sell portrait photography over the phone. But I didn't stop with sales. I learned how advertisers as, and, and copywriters get people to say yes from uh, an ad they write. How how uh, charity solicitors get people to give funds and donations to particular causes, how recruiters get people, not just armed service recruiters or business, uh, uh, you know, corporate recruiters get people to move in their direction. What do cult recruiters do? Hmm. And uh, down the line, I looked for what were the commonalities that worked in each of these various professions that everybody said, do this, do this thing, because it enriches us if you do. So tell us some of the commonalities. What phrases and thoughts and influence programs, uh, for lack of a better word, because I think sales training is the wrong description, what was the common thread in all of these different entities? I, I was shocked at how small the footprint was. I only counted six universal principles of influence that were recommended in each of these um, influence professions. Uh, the first is reciprocity. People say yes to those they owe. So one thing you can do is give first. Give something of value to people and they will stand ready to give back to you when you ask for something, not necessarily directly in return, but down the road. If you give them um, information that's a value for them, you give them uh, something, uh, a favor or a service for free, and then uh, it's their turn, they're much more likely to say yes to you in return. Uh, here's a, a, a lovely little study done in a, ca- a candy shop. Right? If the manager gives a little piece of chocolate to people as they come in as a sample, they're 42% more likely to buy candy. Wow. Right? Now, the key is you might say, well, maybe they just like the chocolate, so they bought some more. If you look into the data, the great majority didn't buy any more chocolate. They bought something else. It wasn't what they had received. It was that they had received. Hmm. So I always advise, if you go into 
into a situation where you want to be more influential, let's say you're in a new situation, maybe a new organization or uh, setting, and there's a group of people, you want to be influential there. The first question to ask is not to look around that room and say, hmm, who can most help me here? The first question is, whom can I most help here? Huh. So show up with donuts and coffee the first day, and, and it'll pay dividends. Those people will stand on the balls of their feet, ready to give back to you. I remember a couple of years ago, we started getting solicitations through the mail for some charity where they included a dollar bill in the mailer. And you say, wow, that that looks so expensive. I I remember they used to do it. It might have been the, the Heart Association used to send return receipt stickers for you to put on a piece of mail you were sending out so you had yeah. your name and address but this yeah. was next level and then you stop and think about it well between the stamp and the envelope and the printing and putting it together uh, the dollar may be the cheapest part of it but still that has to have an impact on people who open up an unsolicited letter and there's a dollar in it right here's the thing you can't send the dollar back right right so you keep it And as soon as you've kept it, the rule of reciprocity that's been installed in you from childhood that says you must not take without giving a return kicks in. And the American um, Veterans Association gives that little pack of uh, uh, gummed address labels in there, uh, right? It increases donations by 50%. That doesn't surprise me at all because not only does my wife use them, but I imagine every time she pulls out that roll of shiny gold return addresses and pulls it off, she remembers, oh, this came to me from this group. And it, it has right. to be it has to be a nagging motivation that I should really reciprocate their generosity. You know, I get these pens at various conferences and so on that have some uh, sponsor's name on them and so on. And, and uh, you know, uh, they're so trivial, I, I hardly pay attention to them. And they usually go in a drawer with 50 other pins, right? But I went to one conference. All right, I was a speaker, so they knew who I was. And they put my name on the pen. Oh, jeez. Barry. What was the impact of that on you? So that's one of the accelerators of the proof. Not only should you give first, which is kind of different from the usual business exchange where we say to people, you buy our product, you sign our contract, and we will give back to you exactly what you hope for. That means they have to go first. Rule for reciprocity says you go first. Anyway, and if you give something personalized to the individual, right? The rule for reciprocity immediately becomes more muscular. That pen, I carry it around with me. Wow. Because it's got my name on it. And every time I look at it, I see my name on one side of the pen and the sponsor's name on the other side of the pen. Just like your wife remembers. I remember that they gave me this pen. Personal gift, not just a, a, a universal gift they give to everybody. That's one of the keys to accelerating the power of this principle. You know, after our first conversation, I think that was two years ago, I got a lot of email from, from different people, but the one that really stood out to me was from a fan of yours, Bob, and he said, you were burying the lead in your insight about reciprocity and he believes that reciprocity is even more powerful than you suggest. So I have to ask you two questions about this. First, have you ever heard this concept? Has anyone ever told you, hey, you're not emphasizing reciprocity enough? And and what are your thoughts on, on this idea of his? Yes, I think he's right. Uh, it is so fundamental that it appears in every human culture 
There's not a single human society on earth that fails to train its members in reciprocity from childhood. You must not take without giving in return. You must not take without giving in return. In every language, we have very nasty names for people who don't abide by that rule. Mm-hmm. We call them moochers, right? <laughs> who take without giving in return. Or, 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 uh, um, we, we, we can call them various things like, like that, spongers or takers or ingrates or teenagers, uh, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> uh, nobody wants to be labeled like that, so people uh, always give back to us. And in keeping with what your uh, listener said, uh, I have, in the new book, got language to help uh, 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 help us employ this situation in places where we used to drop the ball. How many times have you heard somebody say, Barry, thank you so much for this. That was really great. You really helped me out. And what do you put in the moment after genuine thank you, right? Where the rule for reciprocity dominates that situation. I'll tell you what I used to say. Ah, don't worry about it. It was nothing. No big deal. Right. Yeah, big deal. No big Would have done it for anybody. My pleasure, right. My pleasure. It's not your pleasure. You went beyond. <laughs> I know that I went above and beyond. I went to some effort to do it, and then I just slap it out the window with the back of my hand. So here's what I say now. One of two things. If that individual is somebody who I have a long-term relationship with, I say, of course, I was glad to do it. It's what long-term partners do (laughs) for one another. I put it on the map. I don't deny it. I don't dismiss it. I don't diminish it. I say, it's what long-term partners do for one another. And now... When I need something from that individual, you know, to turn something around more quickly so I could, whatever the issue is. They'll move heaven and earth for you. Yeah. they'll. Now, let's say you don't know that person. It's the first time, and you've done something uh, above and beyond the call for this person. They say, thank you. That was great, Barry. Here's what I think I would say in that moment. Look. I was glad to do it. I know that if the situation had ever been, if the situation <laughs> were ever reversed, right. you'd do the same for me. Once again, we don't diminish it. We just say, you play by the rules. I know you. Look, I know you'd play by the rules. And let's be careful not to say, if the situation had been reversed, you would have done the same for me. That's in the past. It right. would never happen in the, pa- in the past. What, you, what I say now is, if the situation were to be reversed, I know you would do the same for me. So you're planting the again. seed prospectively as opposed to referencing what already took place in the past. I'm planting the seed, and I've cultivated the earth before I planted it. It's the almost like it's pre-suasion. Exactly right. <laughs> so... We're talking about reciprocity on a micro level, and some of the examples that you reference in the book, social etiquette, gift-giving, handshakes, the golden rule, um, things like collaboration or even collusion, but what about reciprocity on a macro level? And some examples include the Marshall Plan or open immigration policies, how does macro reciprocity work? It works uh, remarkably. It, it goes back to the Magna Carta, in fact, where you know the the, the, the British uh, statement of how we govern now. One of the one of the features of it from I think the 12th century said, if we're in a war with another country, if our uh, people, our representatives who are selling, our commercial representatives, our people who are selling in their country, or, you know, if they are protected, then we have to protect their foreign citizens who are in our country. 
explains something that I'm old enough to remember, the the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis mm-hmm. back in the early 60s, when the world was on pins and needles because the U.S. had found uh, that Russia, or no, Soviet Union at that time, had sent guided missiles and put them in Cuba and pointed them to the United States, nuclear missiles. Well, John F. Kennedy, who was president at the time, confronted uh, Khrushchev, head of the Soviet Union at the time, and demanded that they be removed, otherwise there would be war, and said, we've set up a blockade so any Soviet ships that are currently coursing to Cuba to continue to add to the uh, nuclear stockpile there, they would be stopped. And Khrushchev said, if you do that, that's an act of war. It's not any war. It was a nuclear war that was estimated to eliminate one-third of the population on Earth. How did they get out of it? Well, the, the, the story was that Kennedy was so steadfast, so steely-eyed, so resolute that he refused to back down, and eventually Khrushchev blinked and removed his missiles from Cuba, and the U.S. won, and Kennedy built his reputation as an anti-Soviet leader that increased his popularity. There have been some new documents released recently from the Kennedy Library that showed that it was not that at all. It was reciprocation. Oh, really? Kennedy promised to remove missiles from Turkey that were pointed to the Soviet Union if Khrushchev would remove missiles from Cuba and required that Khrushchev not tell anyone about the reciprocal exchange, because that would weaken his political, Kennedy's political position at home as somebody who compromised with the Soviets. And so what happened was the rule for reciprocity was suppressed as the true reason. Instead, stubbornness was elevated. The thing that actually would have created a war was elevated to prominence as the reason we got out of it. It was the opposite. It was reciprocity that exists in all human cultures. That's what got us out of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there's a whole other conversation to be had about why politicians have to hide what really happened and and present such a strong face. I'll hold off on that, but I have to ask you a question about evolutionary biology because you said reciprocity and a lot of the rules of influence show up in every single culture on Earth. So is this a learned behavior or is this really written in our genetics as social primates. This is something that only humans have in terms of future reciprocity. There will be some exchanges, cooperative uh, interactions between uh, infrahumans within their species, right? They can cooperate. But the idea of getting something and having an obligation to give into the future, only we have that. And it's mostly, in my view, socialized into us Hmm. rather than evolved into us. Now, I'm not going to take a clear uh, stand on that, but for the most part, in my view, the reason it exists and we have those nasty names in every human culture for people who violate the rule, is that if we have a society where people give and take and cooperate and exchange the society thrives. It flourishes. Right? So that's why it's socialized into us, I think, primarily. Hmm, quite fascinating. Uh, I have to start with a quote from the new version of the book that, that I found 
quite fascinating. Quote, a central assertion of this book is that our choice of what to say or do immediately before making an appeal significantly affects its persuasive success. But there's a related choice that occurs even before that one. It's whether on ethical grounds to try to attain success in such a way. That's the beginning of chapter 13. Discuss why you thought it was important to dedicate a a big chunk of the book to this. Because the principles we talk about in the book are dynamite. And we've got possession of dynamite. Mm -hmm. So we have to use it ethically. We can use these principles for ill, or we can use it for uh, them for good. And the clear recommendation is if we use them in an ethical, responsible way, we build relationships, we build long-term, sustainable exchange uh, uh, histories with people, and that continues into the future. If we use it to, to uh, exploit or deceive or coerce people into change, uh, we may get that change uh, in the immediate situation, but we've, we've essentially um, created an adversary. Uh, somebody who resents uh, being pushed or tricked uh, into assent. So, uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, Richard Thaler, you know, Nobel uh, laureate, uh, in in uh, one of the endorsements for the book, here's what he says about the book: "There's dynamite here. Please, what use what you learn with care." Now, that's a very wise thing for him to say, not surprisingly, he's a Nobel Prize winner. It's the ethics of the process that are so important to producing long-term relationships that continue to pay off for us. You know, I mentioned earlier that you had gone undercover at car dealerships and, and charities and insurance sales place. There's a line that has always stayed with me from the book, which is, Quote, the number one rule for salespeople is to show customers you genuinely like them. Why is this so important for a salesperson to demonstrate affection to a a customer or a client? Because people like those who like them. And now we're into the second principle of influence, liking, that uh, it allows us to be more influential if we can arrange for people to feel a sense of rapport, a sense of liking for us, before we begin the process, we're halfway there already to assent before we even deliver the request or the recommendation or the proposal. And uh, so uh, one way to do that is to turn the rule that I always heard in every one of these training programs on its ear. We were always told, if you want to get somebody to um, say yes to you for your request or proposal, get them to like you, Hmm. right? And then there are various ways to get them to like you. But one thing I recognized is that the the best way to do it is to come to like them and show them that you like them. And down come the barriers to change, because they know that if you like them, you're going to steer them correctly. That's what we do with the people we like. That's what we do with our friends, right? And the, and the fact is, they will be right. If you truly come to like somebody, you will try to give that person the best possible arrangement because of that sense of rapport and affection you have for that person. So that's what we can do, because we can control how much we like other people more than we can control whether they like us or how much they like us. So let's work on ourselves, find things that are genuinely praiseworthy about that person, Right? It may take a little longer for certain people and other people, but you can do it. Focus on that and let that person know. Give them a compliment, a genuine compliment. 
or find things that are genuinely similar between you and that person. Not only do we like people who, who like us, we like people who are like us. It's members so of the same can, tribe. That's right. You referred recently to, I forgot who you were talking about, but they were a fan of the same team that you're a fan of, and suddenly everything about that person is, hey, they were smarter, their books were better. Everything about them took a step yeah. up, and, and that's just because they're members of the same, you know, they like the same things, they're members of the same tribe, they have similar affiliations. It's that powerful social proof? It's that powerful. It's that powerful. And, I mean, and I, I, I'll, I'll give you the exact situation. I grew up in Wisconsin. The NFL team, <clears throat> that's the home team in Wisconsin, has always been the Green Bay Packers. I read an article a few months ago that said that um, Justin Timberlake that's right. and <laughs> Lil Wayne, and, you know, these two musical uh, celebrities, right, they are both avid Packer fans. Barry, I immediately thought better of their music. And I wanted them to succeed into the future because we're members of the same tribe. And you are not what I think of as a Little Wayne fan. Not from the outset, but man, (laughs) now. (laughs) (laughs) So since we're talking about ethical considerations and questions, it raises a really important issue. How do we protect ourselves from people who may not have your level or Dick Thaler's level of ethical recognition, and how do we protect ourselves from unscrupulous users of of these psychological techniques? Right. So uh, at the end of every chapter in the book, I have a section called Defense, How to Say No to Somebody Who's Used These Principles, right? So let's let's take the liking principle, uh, for example. And let's say you're shopping for a car or uh, you've got somebody who wants to partner with you on some uh, business deal, and you find yourself liking that person more than you would have expected for the amount of time that you've spent together. Let's, let's go to the car salesroom. And, and if you recognize that, Liking is there in the situation to an extent that's inordinate, more than you would expect. Step back from the situation and recognize, why why am I liking this uh, salesperson? Oh, yeah, he gave me donuts and coffee. Oh, yeah, he says that his wife grew up in the same place that I grew up. Oh, yeah, he complimented me on my uh, interior choices for the car I'm looking right? and then And then separate that salesperson from the car because you'll be driving the car off the lot, not him. Hmm. Quite interesting. You know, before we get into some specifics, my favorite story in the original book is how you met Charlie Munger. Tell us about how your relationship with Charlie Munger came about. One day, I went to my mailbox to find an envelope, a big uh, envelope, and I opened it to find a note from Charlie Munger appended to a single share of Berkshire Hathaway stock. The note said, you don't know me, but we have used the material in your book, Influence, to make us so much money here at Berkshire Hathaway. I'm sending you a share of A A stock out of reciprocation, your first (laughs) principle. You deserve something in return. At the time, that share was worth $75,000. This was like and early nineties. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Yes. And today, yeah. that's worth about four hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Exactly. And let me tell you, <laughs> the reason I held on to that share 
all these years with great benefit was because of what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger do in their in in Warren's letter to his shareholders every year for Berkshire Hathaway, where Warren establishes his credibility on the front page. Uh, on the first or second page of text of every of of those uh, of those letters, he does something to give me a sense of his credibility, his knowledge and trustworthiness. He mentioned something that went wrong that year, mm-hmm. something that didn't go as expected, and then he says, "Of course, we've learned from that. We will never do that again." And then he moves on to the strengths of the year, all the things that went right. Barry, every year I say to myself, wow, I'm dealing with a straight shooter here. Not only is this guy knowledgeable, he knows you know, what's, what went right and what went wrong. He's not trying to fool himself with this. He's trustworthy. He's willing to tell us what went wrong before he tells us what went right, right? He establishes his truthfulness, which makes me believe in what went right to truly process it deeply and believe it fully because he first was willing to tell me what went wrong. I now believe the next thing he said. I recall reading something about that in Influence, someone who is honest and humble. Exactly. So I have never thought about selling that unit of a share of stock because every year I see how honest and knowledgeable the man is on the front page of the text that he sent. There was a, a couple of years ago... Berkshire did so well that year. There wasn't anything they did wrong. So you know what <laughs> what what uh, Warren did? He told us about a mistake he made in 1993 with Dexter Shoes. I he told us that. about an error. Just so he's making clear to us, look, I'm not trying to claim that I know everything. Look, I make mistakes. Right? And once again, I'm astounded by the um, the honest, the transparency of the guy, and am willing to follow him from there on. So uh, it's it's a brilliant uh, it's a brilliant uh, tactic. That it's not a tactic in the sense that he's doing something phony. He is an honest guy. He's showing us his honesty by doing something I recommend to, I would recommend to all your listeners. If you've got a case to make, and all cases, of course, have strengths and weaknesses, mention a weakness relatively early in your case, because that establishes your credibility for what you say next. And that's the moment for your strongest argument immediately after you've mentioned a weakness. If you're saying, you know, I, I think we ought to move in this, in this direction for uh, your investments, let's say you're a, 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 an advisor. Uh, but there, let's talk about there's some tax consequences of this, and this may take a little bit longer, right? But I think it will be well worth it for these reasons, People will now listen to those reasons differently in the moment after you've mentioned a weakness, and you will allow those strengths to just wipe out the weaknesses. Quite interesting. The other story in the book that really cracked me up, I guess we should have talked about it when we were discussing the ethical considerations, is the story of the two tailors. Sid and Harry, where one of them <laughs> pretends to be hard of hearing. T- tell us a little bit about that story, because it's just unbelievable that these guys figured this out and used it so effectively. The Dubrek brothers. Yes, yes. Is the story of the who uh, were, ran a men's clothing shop back in the 
1930s in the Depression, right? And uh, when a, a, a person would come in, a man would come in to buy a suit, um, he would be uh, in front of that three-paned uh, mirror, you know, you stand and be getting, uh, trying on a suit. And one of the brothers uh, would call to, uh, across the room to the tailor, his other brother, Harry, how much for this all, this beautiful all wool uh, suit, right? And Harry would call back um, thirty nine dollars, and the other uh, brother would say uh, he would cup his ear to hear, and then he'd say he says twenty nine dollars, as if he didn't hear it correctly, and the guy would jump at it, right, thinking he's getting his, a bargain. And hustle out of the store, uh, thinking he had pulled something over on the Dubrek brothers. In fact, the Dubrek brothers had pulled something over on him, which was to say, "You're getting this deal. At, they're getting this at a at a big discount." In fact, the twenty nine dollars was the true price of the suit. <laughs> so here's the question that story raises, and I, I'm fascinated yeah. by it. So, in the traditional world of behavioral finance. Folks like Thaler or Kahneman would say the buyer there, the suit buyer, was anchored on $39, and suddenly right. 29 looks relatively inexpensive. So, so it kind of raises a couple of questions. Is this just anchoring? Is, this, is there some social authority about, oh, I'm getting a 39, uh, a, a more valuable suit? What's going on with this? And then I want to ask you some questions about behavioral economics. Why does the buyer think they're getting a, a bargain and buy the suit and run out? Right. You're correct about the anchoring process. If I give you a high number, initially, if I ask you the distance to the sun, Barry, and then I want to sell you a bottle of um, mineral water, right? the price of that bottle of water seems smaller to you by the process of uh, anchoring, right? And so you're more likely to buy it. I, it's crazy, but that's the truth. That's the way we work. It has to do with something called perceptual contrast. Anyway, uh, in, in that contrast, the, the $29 suit now seemed less expensive than it would have if he hadn't heard $39 first. Right. So that's one component. The other is he thinks he's getting a great deal, on this, uh, besides the fact that it, it seems less expensive, it seems like it's a $39 suit that he's getting for $29. Right? So both of those things are, are working. So let's talk about behavioral finance. And, and throughout the book, you know, I kept having in the back of my head parallels to behavioral economics. Your first version of this was 1984. Did you have any idea that you were operating in parallel with people like Kahneman and Tversky or Richard Thaler or Robert Schiller or Thomas Gilovich? How aware were you of that field, which really wasn't recognized for right. at least a decade or two later? Right. I had no idea. But I think I understand why it turned out that way. So, for example, the influence the book has been called the Bible of, um, of e-commerce, of uh, digital marketing. Well, when it was written, there was no e-commerce. There was no digital marketing. There was no Internet. And people have said, how could you see ahead so far? Right? In the same way that you would say, how could you see so far ahead into behavioral finance or behavioral economics? It was not by looking forward as some sort of oracle. It was by looking inward. What are the things that have always moved us as a species toward change? What are the things that have always counseled us correctly as to it's time to, to act in this way versus some other way? It, were, it was the six universal principles of influence that had always driven us into change. And so 
that's what I did. I didn't look forward 30 years. I looked inward to the factors that have always moved us as a species. Huh. So let's talk about some of those six. We talked about reciprocity. We talked about social proof. What other key drivers do you think are worth mentioning? We've also talked about authority, authority to a right. degree, the extent to which you, 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 you want to say yes to those individuals who have showed you that they are credible sources of information. They are both knowledgeable and trustworthy. We've talked about that. Uh, another is, of course, scarcity. Mm-hmm. The idea let's, that let's talk about that because that is such a key issue in economics, in finance, in psychology. Why is scarcity such a giant driver? It turns out that the key to scarcity—that is, uh, the idea that people want more of those things they can have less of—is that they're afraid of losing. They're afraid of losing that desirable opportunity. They're afraid of missing out on this uh, this chance uh, to move in, in a productive direction and so on. And as Daniel Kahneman has shown us, uh, loss aversion, the idea of losing something, is more powerful, more motivating than the idea of gaining that very same thing. Right? Right. And scarcity. So... Loss is the ultimate form of scarcity. It means you can't get it anymore. So the thing that makes scarcity so powerful across the widest range of situations is the idea that we will lose something. And that loss drives us crazy to an extent that a gain doesn't benefit, uh, doesn't make us uh, as, as, as satisfied as a loss makes us dissatisfied with the very same thing. Right. It's, a, it's almost a two-to-one ratio. We feel losses twice as intensely as we feel the pleasure of gains. And my pet theory on that I want to, want to ask you about, it feels that gains are temporary. You get a windfall, you could go out and, you know, spend it freely and it's gone, but losses feel like they're permanent and never mm-hmm. to be re- recaptured again. Why do you think the loss factor, the scarcity factor, is well, so much more intense? I have my own opinion, but I, I, I really like yours uh, as well. So my guess is that if you ever see something with a big effect, it's never caused by one thing. Right, it's complex. It's always multiply, multiply caused. So here's what I have thought, uh, and it's an evolutionary explanation. If you are, if you are um, operating at a, a level of survival, right? right, and you have a chance to gain something, okay, you'll get an increment upward. Mm-hmm. Right? If you get an increment downward, you may be gone. Game over, right? You're gone. So you have to pay much more attention to the idea of losing something, because you, it may eliminate you. Right. Existential threats with, are, yeah. are more significant than, you know, a few. I, I always think about this question in terms of Las Vegas. Not that I've been to Vegas in, it seems like, years. But right outside of the casinos is very often jewelry shops, and you watch people come out with winnings and buy you know, crazy expensive jewelry and stupid expensive watches. But the people who lose the rent money, they're really in dire straits. And that's not for people on the edge of survival. If you're if you're just above that subsistence level, man, it's an existential threat to suffer a loss. Existential is precisely right. You're gone. Hmm. So you have to be alert to it. You have to be suspicious about any situation. You have to be willing to move against and counter the possibility of loss to a much greater extent than uh, the probability of gain. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Any other of the main principles that we didn't get to that you think is is worth mentioning before I have one more question I have to ask you, but I want to stay with the principles? Yes, and there's the new one 
the one that I call Unity. I've actually added a seventh for this uh, mm-hmm. edition. Um, we, and we've kind of talked about it already. It's that the willingness of people, if, if as a communicator, you can arrange for people to see you as one of them, right? as of them, not just like them in tastes or preferences or styles or so on. That, that's what, that increases liking. But if you can get them to see you as one of the category of individuals that you consider a we group, an us group, mm-hmm. everything inside that category uh, becomes easier to influence. You're more cooperative, you believe those people more, you trust those people more, you say yes to those people more. Huh, really interesting. And what's what's key is you have to bring to consciousness that unity that exists, right? And I'll give you a short example of something that worked for me. Uh, A while ago I was writing a report, it was due the next day, and as I was uh, skimming it before uh, putting it in an envelope and sending it off, I, uh, I saw that there was a section of it that was not really compelling. I didn't really have the evidence uh, to make that case in that one section that I that I, I, I wanted to be persuasive about. But I knew that a colleague of mine, let's call him Tim, uh, did some research the previous year, and he had the data that I needed, but I didn't have them. He had the data. So I sent him a, a, an email. I said, Tim, uh, I explained, uh, you know, I have this thing. It has to go in the mail tomorrow uh, to this granting agency, and um, uh, I don't have the data. Could you go into your archives, get that data out for me, and send it over to me so I could get it into my report and, and get it off by the end of the day? Uh, yeah, I said, I'm going to call you uh, to tell you about the specifics of what I need. Well, I called him, and Tim was known to be an irascible kind of sour guy. He just was a negative guy. So he picked up the phone. He said, Bob, I know why you're calling. And the answer is no. <laughs> Look, I, I, can't, I can't be responsible for your poor time management skills, man. I, I'm busy, too. Barry, before I knew the research about unity and being raising to consciousness the the category similarity between people right that defines them right i would i i would have said come on tim i need this this thing is due tomorrow he already said no to that here's what i said instead tim we've been members of the same psychology department now for 12 years i really need this I had the data that afternoon. <laughs> I imagine not a lot of people say no to you and get away with it. <laughs> well, my kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, reciprocity doesn't always work with kids for, for obvious right. reasons. They expect it. So, so let me ask you this question. The last time we, I had you on the show, I asked you a question, what made Donald Trump such an effective communicator? Given the fact that we now have a new president and there's all sorts of of, uh, things going on around that, I want to ask you this question about President Biden. A large percentage of Republicans don't believe he was legitimately elected. They believe, President Trump, that the election was stolen. Given everything you know about tribes and influence, what do you think President Biden can do to influence this group of Republicans that he was legitimately elected? I'm going to suggest something. It's a little used, very underused strategy from persuasion science. The convert communicator. This is somebody who used to believe what you believed, what you currently believe. He's one of you, or she's of you and then has a new piece of information that you don't have that changed his or her mind and tells you why. You can't dismiss that person. This is of your tribe. This is of you. 
This is one of you. Now you've got a communicator not speaking from outside of your we group, but speaking to you from inside of your we group and providing a piece of information you don't have. So let's say it's about um, getting vaccinated. Right. And uh, you're just not convinced that you should, and it's not necessary. And then you have somebody who says, I used to believe that. And then my mother got, she wouldn't wear a mask. She wouldn't socially distance. She wouldn't get vaccinated, just like me. And we buried her last week. Or if it was, it's about measles vaccinations, and you say, and then my daughter got measles and she's deaf, right? All right, now that's a piece of information you don't have, but it's coming from one of you. That's what I would recommend. So I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. Let's. Ju- this has really been absolutely intriguing, but let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, tell us what you've been streaming this past year under lockdown. What are your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows or what podcasts are keeping you yeah. entertained? I've been re-streaming Breaking Bad. Hmm. I love this show. Hmm. And these days, The Crown. I've been, I'm still in the middle of The Crown, right? So those are the two I've been uh, entertaining myself with when I haven't been writing this uh, expansion to the book. Hmm, quite, quite interesting. Tell us about your mentors. Who helped influence your career, either as a professor or, or an author? Yes, so there are three individuals uh, in, in graduate school and in, in my postdoctoral uh, fellowships. Uh, one was my major advisor, uh, Chet Insko, another uh, a famous psychologist at my uh, graduate institution, uh, UNC at Chapel Hill, uh, John Tebow, and then uh, my postdoctoral fellow advisor, Stanley Schachter at Columbia University. But I'll give you uh, a mentor who taught me something that I think saved my career. Um, before I went into uh, college, I was a very good high school baseball player, and I had an offer to play minor league baseball uh, from a scout from uh, the uh, White Sox. And I was going to be in, I don't know, uh, level D baseball, you know, way down below to start. And uh, he came to my last game, and he had a contract, and he had a He wanted me to sign it, and I was a center fielder. I wanted to be Mickey Mantle or Willie Mays, you know, and uh, his pen wouldn't work. (laughs) And on the way to the car to get his other pen, we walked. He asked me, hey, kid, are you any good at school? I said, yes. He said, good enough to get into college? Yeah. Good enough to finish college? Yeah. Do you like school? Yeah. Yeah. He said, go to school, kid. You're not good enough to make the majors. And he was right. I couldn't hit a slider. I couldn't hit a good slider. And I was going to see a lot more good sliders as I went up the ranks. And And I went to school instead. That man, I mean, if I had wound up in... You know, class A ball, I moved up to the you know, middle or maybe class double A baseball, and then just couldn't get any further after four years, let's say, of trying. By four years, maybe I'm married. Maybe I have a child. I don't get to go to college now. You know what I get to do? I get to be the assistant manager of the Pizza Hut right. in the last city I wound up in. And, Barry, we're not having this conversation. Probably not. That's we're amazing. Not. Did you ever get a hold of who that guy was? Do you, do you know who he, he is? He passed away. His name was Bunny Brief. Huh. I remember him. Did you have an opportunity he, to thank him? He played for Detroit uh, back in the 
40s and 30s. And, uh, but he was a scout in Milwaukee where I grew up. And Yeah. Did, did you ever have an opportunity to, to thank him for his I, gracious? I never did. He passed away hmm. before I had the chance to recognize how important it was for him to tell me, look, don't just follow your passion, which everybody else says, right? Right. Follow your passion that you're good at. That you're great that you're at, best not even at. good at. Right, right. That's an unbelievable that story. Yeah. So let's go to uh, books. Tell us some of your all-time favorite books, and, and what are you reading right now? So in terms of fiction, Remains of the Day mm-hmm. by uh, Ishiguro, um, and Underground Railroad by Colin Whitehead. For nonfiction, I'm going to go to the things that are influence-related. Aristotle's rhetoric, my mm-hmm. God, at the first time anybody tried to systematize the process of, of persuasion, he did it. And then my uh, Nobel laureate authors, uh, uh, you know, Daniel Kahneman for Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, Nudge for uh, uh, Thaler and Sunstein, uh, those would, and, and what I'm reading now is um, Sapiens mm-hmm. by Yuval Noah Harari. Brilliant, brilliant book. Hmm. Really, really interesting. Let's talk about, you mentioned don't always just follow your passion. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is interested in a career uh, in in psychology or academia or in writing or any combination of those three? If you're really interested in a career in psychology, there's a little secret that you can employ. It's called independent study credit. You get credit for working on a project with one of the professors um, in, 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 psycho- in the psychology department or in the communications department or in the marketing department, whichever one you want to go to. And you get experience working as a professional on a project that they have. That tells you whether you really want to go further in this, mm-hmm. but it also gives you somebody who can write a, re- a letter of recommendation for you to the next step, to the master's program or MBA program or, or um, PhD program, to be in a psychology-related career. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. And our final question What do you know about the world of psychology today that you wish you knew back in 1984 when you were first writing Influence? Here's what I wish I knew about the influence process back then that would have uh, made for a better uh, environment for me uh, going forward. It is. When you are going into a, a, a situation with people you don't know, right? you don't know much about them at all, think the best of them. Think the best about them. It allows you to be generous with them. And here there are three downstream consequences of that generosity. First, by the principle of liking, they will like you more for being a generous person. Second, by the principle of reciprocation, they will give you that generosity back. Third, by the principle of commitment and consistency, when they recognize that they are being generous with you, they are giving you things, they are working together with you, they will want to be consistent into the future with what they have already done. And now you have a set of people you like, who like you, who are exchanging favors, gifts and services and information into the future. If I had known that 30 years ago, 
I would have done it immediately. It took me a long time to recognize that. Huh. Quite fascinating. Bob, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with Robert Cialdini, author of Influence. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous uh, 400 such interviews. Uh, you can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you feed your podcast fixed. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column. It's on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Maruful is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio.